0: Halloween, that magical time of year when we prepare children to dress up in costumes and knock on strangers' doors to ask for treats. It's a unique tradition with no clear origin. Many traditions surrounding Halloween can be traced back 2,000 years to the Celtic Samhain Festival, which marked the end of summer And beginning of winter. The dead were said to return to earth on this sacred night. People gathered to light bonfires and offer sacrifices to honor the dead. Villagers used animal skins to disguise themselves in costumes meant to drive away unwelcome spirits. Treats were involved. Tables were covered with food meant to calm evil spirits. Centuries later, the custom evolved with villagers dressing as demons and ghosts, performing for the spirits in exchange for food. An early form of trick-or-treating that was rejected during the Reformation. But these growing traditions around Halloween continued, and immigrants brought the custom to America in the 19th century. Ever since, Halloween has preyed on our fears while simultaneously serving as a way to have fun, especially for kids. But Halloween 1974 marked a shift in how we celebrate the holiday in America. That night, a Texas man carried out a plan to kill his own son with trick-or-treat candy, a real-life horror story that stirred fear in the hearts of parents for generations. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of Ronald Clark O'Brien, the man who stole Halloween. Poisoned Halloween candy Kills Boy. This shocking headline out of Pasadena, Texas, on November second, nineteen seventy four, told of eight year old Timothy O'Brien's death by cyanide poisoning in candy he received Halloween night. Within minutes of eating his bedtime treat, a pixie stick, Timothy became violently ill and his father called for an ambulance. Tragically, within the next hour, Timothy was pronounced dead. Pasadena Police Lieutenant E.L. Goad asked parents in the Houston suburbs of Deer Park and Pasadena to confiscate trick-or-treat candy from their children and further asked that any candy that had been obtained in the Bowling Green subdivision in Deer Park be brought to the police station Fear spread throughout the community that there could be more poison candy, perhaps a stranger targeting children. But within days, neighbors in this Houston suburb learned the horrific crime had been part of a months-long plan carried out by Timothy's father in an effort to collect life insurance the O'Brien family leased a townhome in Deer Park, Texas. Ronald, his wife Danine, and their children, Tim and Elizabeth, were members of Second Baptist Church in nearby Pasadena. Before leasing their Deer Park townhome, the O'Briens owned a home, but they were forced to sell due to financial setbacks. In 1974, Ronald O'Brien was working as an optician for Texas State Optical. But he had more than 20 jobs on his resume, including work in insurance and a stint at a chemical company. His trouble holding down a job had led to financial insecurity and significant debts and delinquencies on loans. So much so that when their home sold, the $6,000 in proceeds had to be applied to their most pressing debts. O'Brien's take-home salary of $150 a week was barely covering rent, utilities, and grocery expenses. He was months behind on the family car payments and facing repossession. His financial struggles were well-known because he openly spoke about it with colleagues and friends when he asked to borrow money from them, which is why O'Brien's friend, Jimmy Bates, was surprised when Ronald told him he was thinking of buying a home. Weeks before Halloween, O'Brien talked to Jimmy about homes he was considering purchasing, even new availability. But he asked Jimmy Bates not to mention this to his wife, Danine. The Bates and O'Brien families spent a lot of time together and had planned to have dinner on Halloween before they took their children trick-or-treating. 1974 was the first year Ronald O'Brien had taken an interest in this holiday. About two weeks before Halloween, he took his children shopping for costumes, something his wife usually did. Ronald seemed unusually excited about trick-or-treating when the family arrived for dinner at the home of Jimmy Bates on Halloween night. After they ate... Ronald and Jimmy agreed they'd take the children trick or treating in the neighborhood around the Bates house. It was cold and rainy that night, so only one of the Bates' two children went out because the other didn't care to walk around in the rain. Ronald and his children, Timothy and Elizabeth, headed out with Jimmy and his son Mark, all bundled up in their rain gear and costumes. Because of the rain, they decided to limit trick or treating to two streets in the Bowling Green subdivision Citation Street and Donarell Street. Jimmy Bates waited on the sidewalk while Ronald went up to the doors with the children. When they walked up to 4112 Donarell, the home of Courtney and Carolyn Melvin, there was no answer at the door, so the children ran on to the next house. Ronald O'Brien remained on the porch for about a minute before he went running up to the kids holding up a few giant pixie sticks. He held them up in the air and told the children rich neighbors were handing out expensive treats. He excitedly told the children he would carry these treats for them because these pixie sticks tubes were 22 inches long and wouldn't fit in their little trick-or-treat buckets. When the rain picked up again, they agreed to head home for the night. Back at the Bates' home, Ronald O'Brien distributed the pixie sticks to his and Jimmy Bates' children and gave a fifth pixie sticks to a boy from their church who came to trick-or-treat at the Bates' door. Ronald then took his children home while his wife stopped off at a friend's house. For a visit. Back at the O'Briens, Ronald told Elizabeth and Timothy to get ready for bed. Timothy, still dressed in his Planet of the Apes Halloween costume, asked if he could have some candy before bed. O'Brien told the children they could have one piece, and Timothy asked to eat some of his giant pixie sticks. His dad said, Sure. So Timothy tried to take a big gulp from the long plastic tube, but he couldn't get the candy out. His dad helped him, reached for the candy tube, shook it and rolled it between his hands to loosen up what was inside. He handed it back to Timothy who tried again and was able to eat some of the candy, but told his dad it tasted strange, tasted bad. So Ronald O'Brien gave Timothy some Kool-Aid to wash it down. Within minutes, Timothy O'Brien ran to the bathroom and started vomiting. His dad held Timothy up as his son got sicker and went into convulsions. Ronald O'Brien called for an ambulance a little after 9 p.m., but there was no saving his son. Timothy was pronounced dead at Southmore Hospital at 10.40 p.m. Pasadena Police Sergeant Bill Lanier told the Houston Chronicle that he'll never forget walking into that hospital emergency room and seeing Timothy O'Brien's lifeless body and the sight of his father, Ronald, sobbing quietly at his son's bedside. Ronald O'Brien explained how Timothy had become ill after eating his pixie sticks. Sergeant Lanier and other investigators who arrived at the hospital noticed there was foam coming from Timothy's mouth and doctors considered the circumstances to be troubling. Investigators immediately called the Harris County chief medical officer who told them He needed to know what the child's breath smelled like. When he learned there was a scent of almonds, he told them he would have to confirm it with test, but it sounded like cyanide. The investigators worried that other children could be at risk and asked Mr. O'Brien where Timothy had gotten that pixie sticks. Officers were immediately dispatched to two streets in the Bowling Green neighborhood where the O'Briens and Bates had been trick-or-treating. They knocked on each door and asked parents to check on their children, wake them up to make sure they were safe, and then took possession of Halloween candy. Police were able to recover the other four cyanide-laced pixie sticks Ronald O'Brien had passed along to his children, the Bates children, and the trick-or-treater from church. Thankfully, The remaining four had not been opened. Tests would later confirm the top few inches of the candy tube had been packed with cyanide. Whoever had tampered with that candy had opened the plastic tube that was heat-sealed when manufactured, inserted the poison, and then used staples to seal the pixie sticks. The package being sealed with a staple... Is what saved 11-year-old Whitney Parker from the same fate as Timothy. He was the little boy from church who was given one of the poisoned Pixie Sticks when he came around trick or treating at the Bates house. When police arrived at the Parker's house and explained why they needed to get the candy and check on Whitney, his hysterical parents ran to their son's room to find he had fallen asleep with that Pixie Sticks in his bed. He wanted to eat it, but hadn't been strong enough to open the stapled package. One of Jimmy Bates' children tried to eat his candy, but when he played with it and some of the powder spilled on the floor, his mom told him candy time was over and took the pixie sticks away. Both children would surely have died had they eaten that candy because tests on all of the pixie sticks revealed levels of poison that were so high, it could have killed a few adults. Shocked parents and a heartbroken community mourned the loss of sweet little Timothy O'Brien. People across the country sympathized with the O'Briens over their loss, especially Ronald O'Brien, who delivered the eulogy at his son's funeral saying Timothy was a kid who loved sports, especially football and basketball, and he never met a stranger. O'Brien finished his eulogy of his son, saying, I have my peace in knowing Tim is in heaven now. Ronald O'Brien was photographed at his son's graveside service in tears. Then local news reported that back at church, O'Brien sang a solo in remembrance of his son. As neighbors, friends, and strangers mourned the loss of Timothy O'Brien, police were working around the clock to ensure another child wasn't hurt. And the more they talked to Ronald O'Brien, the more suspicious they became that Timothy's dad was involved in the death of his son. In the days following Timothy's death, 30 year old Ronald O'Brien gave conflicting accounts of the source of those pixie sticks. He first said he couldn't remember the exact home where they were handed out, but when police took him back to that neighborhood where they had been trick or treating, he pointed out the Melvin home on Donarell Street. When police rode by the home, with O'Brien in the car, he pointed to the man in the front yard and identified him as the person who handed the candy to him that night to give to the children. That would be the moment everything began to fall apart with Ronald O'Brien's story. The man he pointed out was the homeowner, Courtney Melvin. When police interviewed the Melvins, they learned Courtney left home around 1.30 p.m. on Halloween. He worked as an air traffic controller at Houston's Hobby Airport. He didn't come home until about 10.45 that night, and he had dozens of witnesses at work who could corroborate his alibi. His wife informed police that around 6.45 that night, she told her children to stop opening the door to trick-or-treaters because they had run out of candy. After interviewing neighbors all along the trick-or-treat route Timothy had walked with his family and friends, police found no one had handed out those large pixie sticks. When they interviewed Jimmy Bates and learned Ronald O'Brien had stayed back on the Melvin's porch for just a minute after they didn't answer, investigators felt certain O'Brien was the candy man that night. He had been wearing a raincoat, and they theorized he carried the poisoned candy inside his coat and waited for the right moment to give it to the children. What would make investigators believe Ronald O'Brien was willing to poison his own child and other children? O'Brien had left a trail of evidence that police were able to follow, including a clear motive. They knew of his financial trouble and learned that when Ronald O'Brien met with the funeral director to plan Timothy's funeral on November 1st, he asked questions about insurance payouts and was told he needed a separate death certificate to claim each insurance policy. Ronald O'Brien ordered six death certificates. Investigators learned that despite his financial stress, O'Brien made a move in January 1974 that worried his wife and seemed an unnecessary expense. He opened an account at Pasadena State Bank with the benefit of each member of the family being covered by a $10,000 life insurance policy under what was known as the New Outlooks Plan. The family signed the signature card at the bank and they were covered. But his wife pushed back Saying that small premium they had to pay on the account was a strain on their already tight family budget. She also told Ronald there was no need to pay for life insurance for their children. Months later, he made an appointment with a life insurance agent to write up a policy for his wife, but she canceled the appointment, again, saying it was an unnecessary expense. In early October, Ronald O'Brien purchased $20,000 life insurance policies on both of his children, policies he purchased behind his wife's back. Weeks later, he purchased additional policies on Timothy and Elizabeth. All in, by the end of October, each of the O'Brien children were covered with $30,000 worth of life insurance while Ronald and his wife had minimal policies. One of the Pasadena detectives working the case, Harold Nasif, found an adding machine tape with all of Ronald O'Brien's bills added up next to the numbers on the adding machine. The grand total was close to the exact amount of what Ronald O'Brien would collect if one of his children died. The week before Halloween, on October 23rd, O'Brien requested an extension on a delinquent loan at Medical Branch Credit Union, saying he expected to come into a large amount of money by the end of the year. Based on that expectation, he signed an agreement that he would pay what he owed on the notes by January 1st, 1975. Investigators questioned O'Brien about when he had taken out life insurance on his children and how much insurance he had on Timothy. O'Brien pointed to that $10,000 life insurance policy each of the family members had from the bank in Pasadena. He didn't know authorities had evidence of multiple life insurance policies taken out on his children. When O'Brien's wife was asked about these policies— and the expectation that the family would be coming into a lot of money by the end of the year, she was shocked and said she only knew of their debts and knew of no payout coming their way. It was at this moment, being interviewed by detectives and informed of her husband's lies and deception, that Mrs. O'Brien broke down in tears because it was beginning to sink in that her husband could be the person who killed their son. She wanted to believe Ronald was innocent, but there were so many lies, and so much more she didn't know yet. Investigators had motive and were beginning to piece together evidence of Ronald O'Brien's calculated plan to kill his son. They learned that as early as August of that year, O'Brien had tried to acquire cyanide. He first talked to his manager at Texas State Optical and requested to get cyanide to use in cleaning gold glass frames. The manager reminded Ronald that cyanide hadn't been used in the optical business for decades. But Ronald asked again and was referred to a branch manager who denied the request In September, he called a friend he had worked with at Arco Chemical Company. He explained he was taking a course at a community college, and the professor didn't seem to know as much about chemicals as he should, particularly cyanide. This led to the men having a lengthy conversation about availability of cyanide and O'Brien posing a curious question about fatal doses Just before Halloween, an employee of Curtis Matheson Scientific Company spoke with a man matching Ronald O'Brien's description. The man asked if he could purchase a small amount of cyanide, but was informed the smallest containers they sold were five pounds. All of these inquiries about cyanide, along with the recently purchased life insurance policies, gave authorities enough to get a search warrant For the O'Brien home. There, police found a pair of scissors and a knife. Forensic tests revealed a lavender plastic substance on the blades of the scissors. The knife blade was coated with a substance that had clear particles that were water soluble and contained sugar. This was 1974, and forensic science was in its infancy. The materials found on the knife and scissor blades appeared similar to the plastic from a giant pixie sticks, but there was never a confirmed match in comparison test, and investigators were never able to find a record of Ronald O'Brien purchasing cyanide. Prosecutors Mike Hinton and Victor Driscoll felt the evidence they had, along with witness testimony, of a trail of inquiries about poison and O'Brien's motive to kill due to his desperate financial situation was strong enough to get a conviction. 30-year-old Ronald Clark O'Brien was arrested on November 5th and indicted on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. He entered a plea of not guilty and his trial began in Houston, On May 5, 1975, Mrs. O'Brien testified against her husband, along with O'Brien's friend, Jimmy Bates, the O'Brien's life insurance agent, and several people Ronald O'Brien had asked about acquiring cyanide. One of his customers at Texas State Optical also testified that on the afternoon of Halloween, they saw Ronald O'Brien in the parking lot in front of the business, and he was carrying a stapler and a bag with unknown contents. It's believed the pixie sticks were in that plastic bag. Ronald Clark O'Brien took the stand in his defense and denied guilt. Prosecutors told the jury that a more calculated and cold-blooded crime can hardly be imagined. To murder your own child to collect insurance money. They also pointed out that Ronald O'Brien intentionally distributed four additional poisoned pixie sticks to children, knowing he could be causing their deaths. Had luck not intervened, he would have killed his own daughter Elizabeth, two of Jimmy Bates' children, and Whitney Parker, a fellow member of his church. The state said if Ronald O'Brien could kill one child and not care if he killed four more, then try to blame an innocent man for the crime, it was clear he would likely commit future acts of violence if he was set free. Once jurors began deliberation, it took just 45 minutes to return a verdict of guilty. 70 minutes later, Ronald Clark O'Brien was sentenced to death. There would be several appeals of his conviction and sentence that would last a decade. Appeals were twice heard before the Supreme Court. Each appeal was turned down, and his execution by lethal injection was scheduled for March 31st, 1984. Dainene O'Brien who had held out hope her husband could be innocent until his trial, had long ago divorced him. She remained quiet, refused interviews with the media for nearly a decade. But she agreed to an interview on the eve of O'Brien's execution, in which she shared how she came to terms with what he had done and how she planned to move forward. Before his trial, his wife Danine, visited O'Brien in Harris County Jail once a week. She listened to him cry about the injustice of his situation, vowing he was an innocent man and shouldn't be behind bars. She said there were moments where she felt he could be telling the truth, but deep down, she realized Ronald O'Brien was a liar and a cold-blooded killer. As to the $31,000 life insurance policy for her son, Timothy, it was paid out by the life insurance company, but Danine never cashed the check because in her mind, it was blood money. In 1980, she remarried, and her husband adopted her 15-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. She said her greatest priority was to protect Elizabeth who had coped remarkably well but was struggling as her biological father's execution neared. Danine said she harbored no ill will or hate towards O'Brien. She just felt nothing for him and wanted to move on. The loss of Timothy meant there would always be a void in her life, but she felt once O'Brien was gone, she and her daughter could end the nightmare they have been living for nearly a decade and moved toward a new beginning. Ronald Clark O'Brien released a final statement just before his death, again proclaiming innocence. It read in part, what is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death. Also to anyone I have offended in any way, during my 39 years, I pray and ask your forgiveness, just as I forgive anyone who offended me. Ronald Clark O'Brien's execution by lethal injection began at 12.01 a.m. On March 31st, 1984, hundreds of people gathered outside the Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville, some protesting the death penalty, others throwing candy at protesters and rejoicing that the child killer would be put to death. When news came that the man who stole Halloween had died, at 1248 AM, uttering final words, asking that God may forgive us all. The group outside the prison began to chant, trick or treat. There was rejoicing on death row that night. Behind bars at Texas State Penitentiary, O'Brien had been shunned by his fellow death row inmates who called him Candyman They were disgusted over being housed with a man who killed his own child. To the public, O'Brien would be dubbed the man who stole Halloween because of the impact his actions had on their generation and generations to come. Due to concerns that this kind of crime could be repeated, Pasadena officials began Halloween safety programs that taught parents how to inspect candy to make sure it was safe and in its original packaging. Other cities followed suit, and in the decades since, there have been urban legends about people poisoning candy or inserting glass or metal in candy to harm children, out to enjoy those sweet treats on Halloween. One unbelievably cold story of a father poisoning his son in 1974 has stirred fear responses in parents for nearly 50 years. Timothy O'Brien remains the only child to die on Halloween from a poison piece of candy. But people who remember it happening and were told about it by parents could never forget it. It's the reason other cities and states followed Pasadena's lead. And created Halloween safety programs. And throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s, even as recently as 2018, hospitals and urgent care centers promoted programs in which concerned parents could bring in their child's Halloween candy to be x-rayed. Joel Best is a sociology professor at the University of Delaware He studied these urban legends and people's fears and responses to them for decades. He says the idea that strangers would target children with tainted Halloween candy has been more fiction than fact. The fear of any child being victimized is the result of anxiety about the most innocent among us, kids and their safety. Around Halloween, you think of ghosts and goblins as childlike ideas that can be fun. But as Joel Best put it, we all know criminals are real and they are terrifying. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. To see photos and sources for this episode, check the show notes at southernmysteries.com. And if you like Southern Mysteries and want to hear more, you can hear bonus episodes when you join me on Patreon. You can catch up on all the Southern Mystery Shorts episodes at patreon.com slash Mysteries. And to ensure you never miss a new episode, make sure you tap the follow button where you're listening now so you always see when that new episode goes live since this is a bi-weekly show and if you like Southern Mysteries and want to encourage others to listen rate and review the show where you're listening now so other folks know it's worth checking out it's another way to support the podcast I appreciate that and appreciate you so much for listening to Southern Mysteries